the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on a rather windy but beautiful fall day. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing, and we're glad to have you with us. Today we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He is with the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about um, new voter fraud database uh, that's currently made available of incidents of voter fraud across the nation. You know, there's a lot of back and forth as to whether or not it's actually occurring, and this database is designed to answer that question with concrete evidence. Okay, I ran down the hall feeling just slightly breathless. I don't know why I wait till the very last minute. I'm in a conversation in the lunchroom uh, with one of my coworkers, and we hear, <laughs> fortunately, the radio in the lunchroom was on, and I heard the opening music to, this, to the uh, show, ran down the hall, uh, and attempt to sound like, you know, everything's just fine, but I, I could probably faint right about now. I won't. I'm, I'm good. Well, of course, the big news today had to do with indictments that have been issued to a couple of operatives from the uh, Clinton, from the Clinton, from the Trump campaign, as well as George Papadopoulos, who is an ex-Trump aide, actually a volunteer. And I wanted to try to put this into uh, perspective and um, explain what's happened and what we don't know. And a lot of people are jumping to conclusions that this is, in fact, evidence of collusion. Well, it really has fallen short of that, although there's a possibility that activity involving uh, Paul Manafort in 2017 could somehow be linked. Uh, in the same way that uh, when there's a connection made with the Clinton campaign, those who oppose her immediately draw the conclusion that, yes, this is the, the evidence we've been waiting for that proves that she is corrupt. Well, we don't uh, we can't answer those questions quite yet on either count. Uh, my uh, my hope is that uh, we have a responsible investigation that comes uh, finally to a conclusion that represents the truth and not a partisan hack job on either side of the political continuum. So one can only hope. Now, in the middle of all of this, there is a call that was in the Wall Street Journal last week. There's a call for Mr. Mueller to recuse himself, given the fact that there's now a connection between the uh, the dossier, the, the uh, Obama administration, Clinton. He was in the FBI at that time. So there's a lot going on right about now. I won't go into all of that, but do want to provide a little bit of information that might be helpful in sorting through it all. And my prayer is, at the end of the day, we're going to know the truth. If there's corruption, I want to know about it. I don't care if it's the right side or the left side. We need to know. This is eating up a lot of time and energy in Washington and elsewhere that could better be spent on uh, meeting the needs of the American people. I would also argue that the presidency, for example, has grown to proportions that the framers of the Constitution would not have recognized. The idea was the the executive would be almost... uh, not irrelevant, but the the position would be of such insignificance in view of the three branches of government that we wouldn't spend most of our time wringing our hands worried about what the president's doing because he alone did not wield uh, as much power and authority. He didn't uh, overuse his executive authority as we've seen in the last 
um, well, what, eight years. In any event, uh, all of that said, uh, there's a lot going on, and it's a, it's disappointing, it's frustrating, although not altogether surprising, giving pol- given politics uh, in the 21st century. Well, let's try to make sense of Paul Manafort, Rick Gates. They've been invite- indicted, rather. I think they wish they had been invited, but in fact, they've been indicted by a federal grand jury in the Russia probe. Now, it's not directly linked to the campaign, although some are suggesting um, these are the small fish, they're bigger fish uh, that are actually the target. That's speculation. We won't go there. What we do know is former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort and his associate Rick Gates have been indicted by a federal grand jury today on 12 counts, and that's according to the special counsel's office. Now, the special counsel's office... Um, Uh, says that uh, the counts include conspiracy against the United States, conspiracy to launder money, unregistered agent of a foreign principal, false and misleading foreign agent registration statements, false statements, and seven counts of failure to file reports of foreign banks and financial accounts. Now, the attorney for Paul Manafort, who came out and spoke for just a few minutes earlier today, made the point that uh, these kinds of charges rarely stick, that in some cases um, they've stretched quite a bit to uh, issue charges at all with regard to money laundering, for example. Um, Whether or not that's the case, I mean, he's representing the interests of his client. Uh, I certainly cannot cannot guess. Um, But these are the kinds of things that are being said in Mr. Manafort's defense. Now, both Manafort and Gates are going to appear before a magistrate judge. In fact, they did that earlier today, I should say. Judge Deborah Robinsonat, or something like that. Uh, for an initial appearance and arraignment, uh, the special counsel office uh, announced earlier. In addition, a guilty plea by former Trump campaign policy advisor George Papadopoulos, which is actually the bigger deal in all of this, was announced by uh, investigator Mueller as well. He admitted to making false statements to FBI agents as part of the investigations. Now, the uh, cases were unsealed today after Manafort and Gaines, uh, Gates rather were permitted to surrender themselves to custody of the FBI. The special counsel's office said they both pled not guilty. Manafort and uh, Gates faced the first charges in the special counsel's investigation. This is also the first time the special counsel's office has confirmed that a grand jury has been impaneled. Up to this point, we really haven't known, aside from um, Mr. Mueller uh, assigning people to work with him in this work and complaints about the fact that they're all Democrat donors with links to Hillary Clinton. That's essentially all that we've known up to this point in terms of their work. This is the first time it's been confirmed that a grand jury has been impaneled. President Trump tweeted on the uh, the news of the indictment saying, sorry, but this is years ago before pa- Paul Manafort was part of the Trump campaign, but why aren't crooked Hillary and the Dems the focus, he tweeted. Well, according to the indictment reviewed uh, by media outlets between at least 2006 and 2015, Mr. Manafort and Mr. Gates acted as unregistered agents of the government of Ukraine, the party of uh, regions, a Ukrainian political party, whose leader was a president from 2010 to 2014 and the opposition bloc. Now, Manafort and Gates generated tens of millions of dollars in income as a result of their work in Ukraine. Now, the indictment says that Manafort and Gates, they laundered the money through scores of United States and foreign corporations, partnerships and bank accounts in order to hide Ukrainian payments from U.S. authorities. Now, I'm guessing they will... Uh, defend themselves, saying that was not the case at all. But this is what the indictment says. More than $75 million flowed through offshore accounts. Manafort alone laundered more than $18 million, which was used by the former Trump campaign chairman to buy property, goods, and services in the U.S. Manafort 
uh, in the U.S. rather. Well, Mr. Manafort concealed that income from the U.S. Treasury and the Department of Justice. Now, he is care and his um, representatives are characterizing this as a paperwork issue. We didn't file the appropriate documents and it's really goes no deeper than that. And the other charges are going to be very difficult, if not impossible uh, to prove and in fact are uh, outside of um, the normal range. But those are cases that they will make and will have to be argued uh, before this panel when the time comes. We're trying to make sense of the uh, Paul Manafort and uh, Rick Gates indictment, as well as um, Mr. Um, Papadopoulos, who was also uh, charged uh, last week. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, next hour, we're going to, well, actually, yeah, next hour, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakowski. We'll talk about a new database. It, uh, it consists of incidents of voter fraud, hopefully finally answering questions as to whether or not it exists, and if so, to what degree. We'll talk with him about that at about 5. And then Brian McClanahan, author of How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, will uh, will uh, be our guest to talk about um, that bit of history, the uh, musical notwithstanding. So stick around for that in the next hour of today's program. We've been trying to uh, make sense of uh, the indictments that were handed down earlier today, Mr. Manafort and Mr. Gates. I looked at, uh, during the break, I looked at my Facebook page from the Georgine Rice Show <laughs> Facebook page and one of my friends, because I'd written there that we're going to try to make sense of that. <laughs> she just wrote, good luck, and put a smiley face, which is <laughs> just about right. Uh, anyway, we're talking about the indictments that were uh, handed down. Uh, these two, Mr. Manafort and Mr. Gates, were required to turn themselves in earlier today. Uh, it was This whole thing was first reported by the New York Times. Uh, the pair are expected in federal court or were expected. That has now come and gone. Gates is a longtime associate of uh, Manafort, according to the Times. His name appears on documents linked to companies that Manafort's firm created in Cyprus to receive payments from politicians and business people in Eastern Europe. And that goes a ways back. White House lawyer Ty Cobb uh, said that he had no comment for the report on on the report at uh, at this time, it's widely speculated that Mr. Manafort would receive the first charges in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, and that certainly was the case today. He was fired as Trump's campaign manager in August of 2016 and has been investigated for his dealings with Ukraine several years ago, for which he did not register as a foreign agent until June of 2017. Now, Mr. Manafort's people, if you will, are arguing that that's really the crux of the case and the add-ons. Uh, really go outside the bounds of uh, typical charges and will uh, will be uh, uh, will be beaten. But uh, that is at the core. But there are other issues, as I mentioned earlier. Chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez, said that the indictments underscore the seriousness of the Mueller probe. And it may, but it doesn't really go to the heart of what that um, uh, probe was uh, is really about. It's the impact that Russia had on the election and collusion with the Trump campaign. It doesn't really point to that, at least not at this point. Uh, the chairman of Donald Trump's campaign and his uh, his deputy have been charged, he went on to say, with conspiracy against the United States, money laundering and making false statements, all related to their work to promote a pro-Putin regime, Perez said in a statement. It's time for Republicans to commit to protecting this investigation and preserving the rule of law. Well, no Republican has moved for or against the investigation and all have said they're waiting for the uh, the outcome. Although, as I mentioned, the Wall Street Journal challenged whether or not Mr. Mueller is still a disinterested party and if the conflict of interest that that has now been 
Um, I think the, the case has been made if he can, in fact, be trusted to make the right decision. And even if he does make the right decision, given his conflict of interest, whether or not the outcome will be accepted uh, because of that. So this is uh, this is what happened earlier today. As I mentioned, the pair, Mr. Manafort and Mr. Gates, um, uh, had pled earlier uh, not guilty. Manafort and Gates pled uh, to all charges not guilty. A judge set a bond of $10 million for Manafort. Uh, $5 million for Gates. Both sides agreed to home detention. Uh, they appeared before the magistrate, as I mentioned earlier today, Judge Deborah Robinson, for their initial appearance and arraignment. Glenn Selig, Gates' uh, spokesman, said in a statement today that Gates welcomes the opportunity to confront these charges in court, although I think he probably would have fer- preferred never having to stand for those charges. But Selig added, this fight is just beginning. Well, he certainly is accurate there. Again, according to the indictment, between at least 2006 and 2015, Manafort and Gates acted as unregistered agents of the government of Ukraine, the Party of Regions, a Ukrainian political party whose leader was president from 2010 to 2014, again in Ukraine, and the opposition bloc, another organization. They generated tens of millions of dollars in income as a result of their work there. The indictment says that Manafort and Gates laundered the money through scores of uh, the United States and foreign corporations, partnerships and bank accounts in order to hide the payments Uh, from Ukraine, uh, from U.S. authorities. More than $75 million flowed through the offshore accounts. Manafort alone laundered more than $18 million, which was used by the former Trump campaign manager to buy property, goods and services in the U.S. in the U.S. He concealed that income from U.S. Treasury and the Department of Justice. And that really uh, goes to a major element of the uh, of the situation uh, as well. Well, it's been more than a year since Paul Manafort uh, briefly led uh, President Trump's uh, quest for the White House and even longer since he worked for uh, the controversial Ukrainian government. Um, and the timing of all of that, as I mentioned, we're looking at a period from uh, as early as 2006 up to 26, uh, 2015, rather. But many are arguing that and perhaps out of ignorance or just a desire Uh, that there's a possibility that that activity continued right up through the present. And that will be part of what this investigation will attempt to uh, to verify or uh, to um, discredit. Meanwhile, uh, George Papadopoulos, he's a former foreign policy advisor to President Trump's campaign. He pled guilty earlier this month to making false statements to the FBI. So he has pled guilty. And and I think most people would argue that this is really the more serious of the, the two uh, cases. Papadopoulos, he's 30. He was charged with willfully and knowingly making false statements to FBI agents regarding the timing, the extent and the nature of his relationships and interactions with certain foreign nationals whom he understood to have close connections with senior Russian government officials, according to court documents. He was arrested on the 27th of July. He pled guilty on the 5th of this month. He was an early foreign policy advisor for Trump's presidential campaign. He emailed seven other campaign officials in March of 2016 to offer to set up meetings with Russian officials to discuss U.S.-Russia ties under President Trump. The Washington Post reported back in August of this year. He would report 
reportedly continued to make those kinds of offers as he worked with the campaign. Now, during the campaign, he reportedly traveled to um, Israel, where he took part in an energy conference, uh, presumably on behalf of the campaign. Well, after becoming an advisor to the Trump campaign, he interacted with a professor understood to have substantial connections to Russian government officials who told Papadopoulos that the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton, Trump's campaign rival, according to a court documents released by special counsel Robert Mueller's office. Well, Papadopoulos had uh, told investigators that the professor divulged the information prior to his joining the Trump campaign. However, the professor only took interest in Papadopoulos because of his status with the campaign, again, according to court documents. Well, he also repeatedly attempted to use the professor's Russian connections, as well as that of a female Russian national to arrange meetings between the Trump campaign and the Russian government officials, according to the special counsel's office. He's cooperating with the FBI investigation, according to court documents, which could prove if, in fact, there is some evidence of if there's a history of collusion of of any kind in order to save his uh, rather substantial bacon. He might be willing to do more than uh, than he otherwise might. Then again, if there's nothing there, um, He's uh, he's someone who can can confirm that. Well, additionally, as I mentioned, Mr. Manafort, to 68, former campaign chairman of the president and his associate, Rick Gates, have also been uh, charged uh, with crimes which they stood uh, for earlier today. Prior to joining uh, Trump's campaign, Papadopoulos was an advisor to Dr. Ben Carson's own 2016 presidential campaign. Aside from campaign work, he has uh, worked as an oil and gas consultant. His LinkedIn page says uh, much of his work has revolved around natural gas and Greece, Cyprus and Israel, according to the Washington Post. He was also the director of the Center for International Energy and Natural Resources, Law and Security at the London Center of International law practice. From Chicago, he graduated from DePaul University in 2009, also received a Master of Science from the University of London, according to his LinkedIn page. But again, his fat is now in the fire. And these are the cases that uh, were brought to light by the uh, uh, by the Mueller investigation earlier today. Meanwhile, and rather surprisingly, Tony Podesta, he's the founder of the Podesta Group and brother of uh, former Hillary Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta, resigned from his lobbying company. Well, Podesta and his uh, firm were subjects of a federal investigation led by special counsel Robert Mueller. The Podesta Group was one of several firms that worked on campaign a campaign called the European Center for the Modern Ukraine. The campaign uh, was led by Paul Manafort, promoted Ukraine's image in the West. Manafort, uh, who served the president as the campaign manager for a period of time, was indicted. But according to Politico, which first reported the story, Podesta will be handing over full operational and financial control to the company's CEO, Kimberly Fritz. In an email to his staff, he reportedly said he was stepping down because he needs to fight this as an individual but doesn't want to the firm to fight it. A person familiar with the farewell speech says, dubbed on the D.C.'s 50 heavy lifters by the Financial Times and one of Washington's biggest players by the New York Times, Podesta turned his uh, once modest lobbying firm into a heavy hitter. But in the weeks uh, of, in the wake rather, of the Mueller investigation, the Podesta group uh, has struggled. About a half dozen of its clients have cut ties with the firm this year. The firm brought an estimated $4.8 million in the third quarter in 2017, down from $6.1 million in the third quarter of 2016. So what that means, uh, him stepping down, I'm not altogether sure, but that's what we uh, that's what we know at this point. All right, we're going to take a break, but we will continue our 
uh, walk through um, what happened today in Washington having to do with investigations, primarily the Mueller uh, investigation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're just sort of sorting through some of the investigations and allegations that are out there. As I mentioned earlier in the program, my concern is arriving at the truth. Whoever is guilty of whatever, I'd like to know who that is without uh, attempting to protect one side or the other. I think it's in the best interest of the country if ultimately we arrive at what actually happened or didn't happen uh, so that those who are charged with uh, working on behalf of the American people can be less distracted and actually do the job uh, they are being compensated and have been elected to do. Well, another element in all of this is the um, uh, Fusion GPS. Uh, what we learned uh, just a few days ago is that conservative news site hired Fusion GPS before the Democrats did. Fusion GPS is a Washington research firm. It's uh, founded and staffed by several ex-Wall Street Journal reporters. So when did the outfit responsible for the uh, Trump-Russia collusion dossier paid for by Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC get started in this whole enterprise? Well, it turns out that the Washington Free Beacon originally hired the firm to do some research on multiple candidates in the Republican presidential primary. Now, the conservative news site was unapologetic for its methods, writing in a statement and And I quote, all of the work that Fusion GPS provided to the Free Beacon was based on public sources and none of the work product that the Free Beacon received appears in the Steele dossier. The Free Beacon had no knowledge of the uh, knowledge of or connection to the Steele dossier, did not pay for the dossier, never had contact with knowledge of or provided payment for any work performed by Christopher Steele. Nor did we have any knowledge of the relationship between Fusion GPS and the Democratic National Committee. Committee, Perkins Coy and the Clinton campaign, end quote. In other words, as part of um, uh, the, the kind of research that campaigns do, they had uh, or opponents to campaigns, they had hired Fusion GPS to do some work for them that wasn't connected with the dossier, but they were uh, they had work done. Uh, to give them um, uh, research on the candidates. Well, the Free Beacon is funded in part by billionaire GOP um, donor Paul Singer, who is no doubt uh, why it was able to afford such expensive research, because it is that very expensive. It ended the arrangement with Fusion GPS in April of 2016, after which Fusion approached Clinton's campaign and offered to continue its research on Donald Trump. So Fusion approached the Clinton campaign. Steele wasn't hired until months later. Well, the news is significant in establishing something of a timeline, especially given the effort by the Washington Post to direct some attention uh, in its uh, Clinton scoop to the mysterious Republican client who originally hired Fusion GPS. But it doesn't appear that the Free Beacon committed anything other than journalism. Uh, Fusion's research at that time had nothing to do with Russia, and the entire collusion narrative was the propaganda product of Uh, of their later work. Now, we'll see if Fusion GPS has anything to add this week in House testimony beyond invoking the Fifth Amendment as it executes, uh, as its executives rather did last week. But that's where it stands at this point. Well, the other question that uh, remains on the table, did Hillary Clinton break the law by hiring Trump dossier, uh, the author of that um, of that document? Now, some say this is just 
uh, campaign research. It's what campaigns do. Did they cross the line? I think that's a legitimate question, but what's the answer? Well, election law experts are divided on what crimes, if any, the Hillary Clinton campaign may have violated or the DNC by hiring former British spy Christopher Steele to compile dirt on Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign. So it's not clear if laws were broken. Some experts believe that Clinton and the DNC may have violated a ban on foreign contributions to campaigns, though others disagree and emphasize potential disclosure violations by filtering payments through a law firm. So there are two different potential charges there. Um, says um, one attorney, Cleta Mitchell, a Republican election law expert, partner at the law firm Foley and Ladner, LLP. I think disclosure is not the key here. It's the foreign issue. That is a big deal. She uses an expletive. I would not. There's been no allocation that the Trump campaign went out looking for ways to get those Russians to manipulate the election for Trump. But now you have these payments to a foreign national, end quote. She says there's strong public policy historically that prohibits paying a foreign national or receiving anything of value from a foreign national in a U.S. campaign. Mitchell goes on to say if it involves an amount uh, over $25,000 and it's knowingly and willfully a felony. Well, Mitchell points to the words expenditure and disbursement on the 11 CFR 110.20. It's a form that's required that says it will be important to learn more about Steele's citizenship, residency, interaction with other foreigners and the ownership of Fusion GPS. Now, Hans von Spakovsky, whom we'll be talking about on another issue later today is a former Federal Elections Commission member who now works at the Heritage Foundation, and he shared a similar view when asked to evaluate the theory that paying foreigners may be the violation here. Yes, they uh, are in potential trouble, he says. Foreign nationals are prohibited under 2 U.S.C. 441E from directly or indirectly making any kind of contribution, disbursement, expenditure, or independent expenditure in our elections, he says. If you look at the FC- FEC regulation on this, it explains this statute in great detail. If a campaign is involved in soliciting such participation, they are in violation of the law. Now, that's a little different from what many are suggesting is the crime here for the Clinton campaign and the DNC, if in fact there is one. Well, Fusion GPS uh, isn't responding to uh, requests for comment or more information. And as I mentioned, they pled the fifth when Uh, before members of Congress. A person close to the Clinton campaign pushed back forcefully on the idea that hiring foreigners, foreigners rather, would trigger a foreign contribution violation, saying it's crazy, stupid uh, theory. The person close to the campaign said under it, Trump would have violated it by uh, buying hats and T-shirts manufactured abroad, they said. Well, Mitchell said she believes there's a difference between merchandise and foreign opposition research and that the FEC regulations prohibit anyone from getting foreign nationals involved in a federal state or local election in a manner that causes them to make disbursements related to the election. Well, the back and forth uh, can go on and on. I'm guessing most of us are not in a position to determine whether or not charges do apply uh, because of a foreign connection or the, the way the paperwork was filed. We do know that Mr. Manafort, for example, has been indicted in part because he didn't file paperwork. So that can be a serious issue. We just don't know if that's the case um, here. So We'll just have to wait and see what the investigation, uh, if in fact one continues on that uh, on that score, uh, ultimately reveals. So that's sort of where that stands. I appreciated what Andrew McCarthy wrote in National Review on what he called a bipartisan dossier of collusion. At every turn, he writes, Democrats get tangled in their own collusion web, accusing one side of doing what they 
uh, may in fact have done themselves. And this is what he writes. Have you noticed that we are no longer talking merely about the Trump dossier? Ever since the Washington Post startling revelation this week that the dossier was commissioned and paid for by the Clinton campaign and the DNC, there's been a subtle tweak in the coverage. Now reports allude to the research that led to the Trump dossier. Why the shift in emphasis? Because the Democrats and their media accomplices are doing what they do best, controlling the terms of the public discussion in order to obfuscate, which explains at least in part why Mr. Trump is such an avid uh, tweeter. Democrats now own the dossier. That is a problem. The dossier was supposed to be seen as a roadmap of Trump collusion with Russia. But now the dossier is emerging as a campaign trick that was itself compiled through collusion between the Democrats, contractor and Russian sources. Hence, a focus on the dossier has become counterproductive. Better to refer to the research that led to the dossier, which widens the lens to capture some Republicans' involvement in an initial anti-Trump research project, which has now been explained and pretty much ruled out of this whole quagmire. In reality, only after this project was uh, taken over by Democrats uh, were new operatives hired and the dossier created. Still, Dems and their media allies figure the facts are vague enough that the early research can be conflated with the eventual dossier, thus implicating Republicans and obscuring the Democrats' singular culpability. Clever, but it's not going to work, he writes. After a year of Democrats pounding the Trump-Russia drum, it won't help them to tee up the dossier and, of course, the research as a bipartisan undertaking, not when it turns out that the collusion itself is a bipartisan undertaking. On the dossier, let's get it straight. There would be no dossier were it not for the Clinton campaign and the DNC. My own previous reluctance to finger the Clinton campaign, he writes, has been proven wrong by the Post's reporting. And in uh, a correction to its original story, the Post itself has noted that left-leaning Mother Jones reported in October of 2016 that the compendium, now known as the dossier, was a Democrat-funded research effort. So it actually was known. It only became really known recently. On Friday evening, after we thought this column was put to bed, he writes, It was revealed that the Washington Free Beacon, a conservative publication, funded the original Fusion GPS project. As the Washington Examiner's Byron York reported, the Free Beacon retained Fusion GPS to do research on several Republican candidates, not Trump alone. The project had nothing to do with Russia or Christopher Steele. It ran from fall of 2015 to spring of 2016, and we've already gone over that. That is when the law firm of Perkins Coy, uh, counsel for the Clinton campaign and the DNC, retained Fusion GPS. Only then did Fusion hire former British spy Christopher Steele. It was not until two months later that Steele completed his first company intelligence report dated June 21st. Uh, That began what became the so-called dossier, 35 pages of Steele's sensational investigative summaries. Some reporting, for example, by business insiders Natasha uh, Bertrand suggested that parts of the dossier have been verified. But Byron York notes former FBI director James Comey has dismissively described it as salacious and unverified. Much of its significant content has been vigorously disputed. Whatever its quality, though, the dossier is a a political document, a Democrat Party campaign and political opposition screed through and through. The Clinton campaign and the Democrats never wanted this to be known. That's why they uh, took such pains to insulate themselves. The Perkins Coy law firm and Steele uh, were their lawyers of deniability, or rather layers of deniability. That's not just a theory. Two well-regarded uh, New York Times reporters, Maggie Haberman and Ken Vogel, have told their Twitter followers that people complicit in funding the dossier vigorously denied any involvement. 
And, and uh, he goes on from there. How's this a Clintonian flair? Uh, during Senate Intelligence Committee testimony last month, Clinton campaign manager John Podesta insisted that he was unaware of any funding connection between the campaign, Fusion GPS, and the dossier. At that moment, sitting in silence next to Podesta was his lawyer, Mark Elias. If that name rings a bell, it's because Elias just happened to be the Perkins Coy lawyer who got the dossier rolling by hiring Fu- uh, Fusion GPS in April of 2016. Well, it, it's... It, doesn't exactly pass the smell test that the campaign manager was unaware of a major financial expenditure. So it does really beg the question of, uh, you know, why Mr. Podesta would claim that he had no idea. But it goes on from there. You can read more of the National Review. Uh, Andrew McCarthy writing on this whole bipartisan dossier of collusion a story as it has been spun most recently. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. We'll talk about a new database that um, keeps track of incidents of voter fraud across the nation. We're also going to talk with Brian McClanahan. He's the author of How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. That's uh, in the 5 o'clock hour as well. I want to remind you that KPDQ is giving away nearly 100 tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. You can visit kpdq.com or your uh, KPD, KPDQ mobile app to enter to win a four-pack of tickets to our special matinee performance on Saturday, November the 25th at the uh, Keller Auditorium. Um, Did I mention that's the two o'clock performance if I didn't mention it? Portland Singing Christmas Tree celebrates its 55th season with a two hour musical production showcasing both contemporary and traditional holiday music. Well, Christmas music performed by over 350 voices, adult youth voices, uh, dance numbers from the Jefferson Dancers, special numbers by local actors and musicians. It's just going to be a lot of fun. I get an opportunity to come along and uh, sing with the the choir as well. So we're going to have a great time. We'd love for you to enjoy uh, a family four-pack of tickets. And you can go to kpdq.com to find out more about how you can win. Hope you'll do that. Well, Senate Republicans are heading into four votes this week to confirm appeals court judges. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell Served notice uh, late last week that the Senate will consider four of the president's nominees to federal circuit courts. The powerful appeals panel that uh, gives the final word on the overwhelming majority of cases in the U.S. Michigan Supreme Court Justice Joan Larson for the sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, the Cincinnati-based appeals court. Colorado Supreme Court Justice Allison Eide for the 10th Circuit, the Denver-based appeals court. Notre Dame Law School Professor Amy Coney uh, Barrett of uh, the 7th Circuit, the Chicago-based Appeals Court and University of Pennsylvania Law School Professor Stephanos Bebas uh, for the Third Circuit, the Philadelphia-based Appeals Court. Larson was among 21 candidates included on uh, Trump's list of possible Supreme Court nominees during the 2016 presidential election. She's widely seen as a front-runner for the president's next appointment to the high court. Speaking uh, on Thursday of last week on the Senate floor, Mitch McConnell lavished praise on the nominees and vowed swift confirmations, saying President Trump has done a terrific job of nominating judges who are already helping to restore the courts to their intended function in our system of government. He said the nominees uh, we will consider next week are sure to do the same. Well, two of the nominees, uh, Barrett and Bebas, 
uh, were subjected to intense criticism by Senate Democrats during Barrett's confirmation hearing in September. Several Democrats on the Judiciary Committee suggested that her orthodox uh, religious views would preclude her from effectively discharging her judicial duties. Uh, Barrett, a Roman Catholic, had produced scholarships uh, concerning the ethical uh, rather scholarship concerning the ethical obligation of Catholic judges. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, the ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, argued that Barrett's writings betray a rigid religious ideologue ill-suited for the judicial post. Now, keep in mind, the senators are forbidden by the Constitution from applying a religious test. But she went on to say, when you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you, Feinstein said. And that's of concern when you come to big issues Uh, that large numbers of people have fought for years in this country. Well, of course, whether or not they've been fought for is irrelevant to a judge. Whether or not they're constitutional is the issue uh, at hand. But nonetheless, two other Democrats, Senators Dick Durbin of Illinois and Maisie Hirano of Hawaii, reiterated her concerns. Well, Feinstein's remarks, uh, first reported by the Daily uh, Caller News Foundation, were roundly condemned by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, while uh, something of a pro-Barrett cottage industry was uh, promoting uh, novelty items supporting her confirmation. I'm not really sure that's going to help, but okay. McConnell accused Democrats of applying a religious litmus test against the Notre Dame professor. Uh, Barrett helps, uh, rather happens to be a nominee who is Catholic uh, and who speaks freely and openly about her faith and its importance to her. For some on the left, that seems to be a disqualifying factor for her nomination, uh, McConnell said. Well, the Senate Majority Leader added that he expects Barrett will be confirmed as soon as Monday. Didn't happen today, maybe tomorrow. Barrett and Larson, clearly the Judicial uh, Committee, um, cleared the Judicial Committee, rather, on party lines uh, earlier this month. Beavis received similarly coarse treatment from committee de- uh, Democrats, particularly Dick Dermott, Uh, Durbin, the Illinois Democrat, savaged the professor for exploring the merits of corporal punishment in the penal system, including electric shock therapy, in an unpublished 2009 journal article. Bebus has disavowed what he characterizes as an ill-advised thought experiment and is widely seen as a thoughtful scholar by criminal justice experts across the political spectrum. Still, Durbin vehemently denounced his nomination, and we'll see what happens in the... um, in the days ahead, as uh, and we're talking about few days ahead, as Mitch McConnell has indicated, this is going to be a priority, um, a priority for him. I don't know if you're a football fan, but um, the Chicago Bears uh, tight end Zach Miller underwent emergency sur- uh, surgery on Sunday night after suffering one of the most brutal injuries I wish I had never seen. I, you can't unsee certain things. But if you can imagine someone standing upright, your knee bends and your uh, your foot, of course, goes back toward your buttocks. His knee bent the opposite direction. And it's such a clear breach of, uh, you know, what your leg is supposed to. It, it just it made me feel nauseous to see it. Um, and it was such a severe injury that there there's a possibility. And I'm not sure where that stands today. The surgery was yesterday, and I'm sure this is going to require ongoing care. The concern was whether or not he would be able to keep his leg. So this was on Sunday night after suffering this brutal injury to his knee that reportedly put him in danger of that very thing. Initial reports from the field indicated that he suffered a dislocated left knee during a third quarter touchdown attempt. 
ESPN later uh, cited sources that the 33-year-old uh, required vascular surgery to repair a damaged artery as a result of that injury. According to the ESPN report, team sources said the injury was more significant than a regular dislocation and that the surgery required grafting tissue from his right leg to repair the damaged artery in his left leg. If you are at all queasy, and I'm, I'm not particularly, but I found seeing this image was, was very difficult and again, it's something I, I, if I could have avoided it, I wasn't attempting to see the image. I wanted to read the story and uh, they had the picture and I tried to scroll down and, and happened to see it, but just very, very difficult. Anyway, at the time of the injury, he was attempting to haul a 25 yard touchdown pass from a rookie quarterback. Uh, but his uh, left leg bent awkwardly as he uh, landed. The play was originally called a touchdown, but as he was uh, carted off the field, officials overturned that call and said the ground caused the uh, ball to loosen uh, in his grasp uh, as his upper body crashed to the turf. I can't imagine the excruciating pain he must have experienced at that moment. But if you think of it, whether or not you're a football player, uh, or rather a football fan, Chicago Bears tight end Zach Miller um, at least initially, uh, there was the possibility that he might lose his leg, and I'm not sure if that has since been um, uh, been reversed, but a very serious uh, injury indeed. And if you can avoid seeing the image, I would encourage you to just avoid it because it's uh, it's bad. We're going to take a quick break here at the top of the hour. We've got news and traffic. When we come back, I'm going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. We're going to talk about this new um, database of incidents of voter fraud across the across the country. Is there voter fraud or isn't there? And how substantial is it if, in fact, there are cases on this database? There's the back and forth, and we'll try to get to the bottom of it. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. About six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Brian McClanahan. He's the author of How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Not a very popular title, I imagine, right about now, with a musical and all. We'll see if we can get him to sing his way through the interview to explain how both the left and the right, and those were defined quite differently by his contemporaries, the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, considered him a hero at one time or the other. And we'll find out uh, his analysis based on, well, Mr. Hamilton's sometimes fickle views on subjects. So we'll get into that later this hour. Well, a Pennsylvania election official confirmed uh, on Wednesday that non-citizen immigrants illegally voted in elections hundreds of times since 2000. And that cast doubt, of course, on the state's ability to screen out ineligible voters on its election rolls. Jonathan Marks, who's the commissioner for Pennsylvania's Bureau of Commissions, Elections and Legislation, told a state a legislative committee that an agency's analysis found that 544 improper ballots cast from 2000 to 2017. And there are new reports that uh, rise every once in a while of voter fraud continuing to make their way into the spotlight. Well, the Heritage Foundation has recently released its database of incidents of voter fraud across the nation. So to join us to talk about that is Hans von Spakovsky. He's the manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you. Georgine, thanks for having me on. Well, of course, the back and forth uh, tends to be there is voter fraud, there isn't voter fraud. It's uh, insubstantial if there's an admission on one side or the other. First of all, give us some perspective on the subject of voter fraud and um, how it's being carried out if, in fact, there are uh, incidents that are having an impact on elections across the country. 
Sure. Well, our, our database has uh, almost 1,100 proven cases, and that's a very conservative estimate because oh, the only thing we put into the database are cases where somebody was actually convicted in a court of law. So, for example, the almost 600 uh, illegal votes cast that you just mentioned in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. of non-citizens, that's not going to go into our database unless uh, prosecutors in the state actually prosecute. We didn't want anybody questioning, you know, what's in the database. So it's very clear that what's in our database is the, the tip of the iceberg. And the fraud, in, in some of the cases, it actually overturned the election. Uh, some of the cases involve hundreds of fraudulent ballots. Others are isolated cases of someone taking advantage of the system. And the fraud ranges from non-citizens illegally registering and voting to people voting in more than one state in the same election, to uh, absentee ballot fraud, uh, ballot petition fraud. I I mean, really, every way you can imagine that somebody could steal a vote, we've got a case for it uh, in our our database, and they're from all over the country. Now, is this an issue of states uh, mismanaging uh, their own elections, or is this something that uh, the federal government should have a role in? Who's responsible? Well, it's a little bit of, of both, although it's mostly the states. Um, I mean, i give you an example of what I mean. Uh, there's a lot of states, uh, like California, for example, um, that don't do anything to check to see whether or not people registered in California are also registered in neighboring states. Uh, they do absolutely nothing uh, to make sure that when somebody says they're a citizen on the form and then registers, they do absolutely nothing to actually verify that, in fact, they really are a U.S. citizen. So uh, there's a lot of, frankly, very lack, lackadaisical um, work by election officials. And then other parts of it, the federal government, for example, uh, the federal government isn't doing anything about the information it has uh, at the Department of Homeland Security uh, of non-citizens who have been caught uh, registering and illegally voting. That information is just sitting there in their files, and they haven't done anything with it. Now, one would assume that both sides of the political spectrum would want this sort of thing to be addressed so that uh, elections were fair, that only those who were eligible to, uh, eligible to vote would participate. Why is there a controversy over uh, voter um, registration or ballots being um, uh, cast that that are not eligible uh, by uh, that's been politicized. Well, you one would wish that would be true, but unfortunately, it's not. Um, officials in uh, Democratic officials have been very much against any kind of efforts to improve the security of the elections. And I, I give an example of what I mean. The the uh, Democratic governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, former head of the DNC. Um, about a year and a half ago, he vetoed a very simple bill that the uh, Republican legislature passed in Virginia. It simply said that when someone was called for jury duty and they were excused because they were not a U.S. citizen, that information had to be sent to local election officials so they can take that person off the voter rolls. Why? Well, because the jury lists are drawn from the voter rolls. Uh, Terry McAuliffe vetoed that bill. Now, the only possible reason for vetoing a very straightforward uh, bill like that is if you want non-citizens registering, voting, and not getting caught. 
again, it's it's baffling. Uh, I know that in the case in Pennsylvania, some of those uh, individuals who voted apparently had registered uh, to renew their driver's license were automatically registered. The uh, Pennsylvania, um, uh, the person who oversaw the the uh, the secretary of state actually resigned. Um, and there were some one thousand one hundred and sixty canceled voter registration listings. Uh, because people were ineligible, and that's not just the 544 improper ballots that were cast. Um, what's the what having the database where there are, are numbers of those who have been convicted, excluding those that there may be questions about? What's the solution to this that everyone might agree on? Well, I don't know if everyone would agree to it, but there's a whole <laughs> there's, there's a whole series of recommendations that ought to be made. First of all, uh, every state ought to require a government-issued photo ID to vote both in person and by absentee ballot. And, you know, provide a free ID for anyone who doesn't have one. Uh, Every state should require proof of U.S. citizenship when they register to vote. Every state should require um, the DMV and uh, uh, courts to provide information about non-citizens who get driver's licenses, non-citizens excused from jury duty, to local election officials, so those people can be taken off the voter rolls, and it should be mandatory that that information be also sent to law enforcement officials for possible investigation and prosecution. In a lot of these cases, for example, again, the um, uh, more, you know more than a thousand people in Pennsylvania who were caught who are not U.S. citizens registering and voting. None of that information was forwarded to any law enforcement officials for investigation and possible prosecution. So there's, you know, more than a thousand potential cases of voter fraud that will never appear in our database. Yeah, it really raises the question of whether or not we're committed to the rule of law, generally speaking, and certainly in this area more specifically. Well, I would uh, encourage our listeners to take advantage of the opportunity to peruse the database that uh, does, in fact, give incidents of voter fraud across the nation that were actually prosecuted. And hopefully we can see some reasonable uh, changes that will impact and secure our elections moving forward. Yeah, I encourage folks, too, at heritage.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good night. Again, Hans von Spakovsky uh, with the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back for the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, well, actually tomorrow is Reformation Day. Whether or not it's on the program, we are going to talk about it, but looking forward to that uh, tomorrow being the 31st. We're also going to talk with Julie Royce, who's the author of Redeeming the Feminine Soul, God's Surprising Vision for Womanhood. And isn't this a great time to clarify, what does the scripture actually say? And does God value women? We'll talk about that with Julie Royce, who will join us. I think we're working on an interview to talk with someone about Reformation Day as well. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Miriam Neff. The book is titled Not Alone, 11 Inspiring Stories of Courageous Widows from the Bible. On Thursday, Stephen Black will be my guest. The book Freedom Realized, Finding Freedom from Homosexuality and Living a Life Free from Labels. Looking forward to uh, talking with Stephen Black. And then on Friday, of course, we'll lighten up as we typically do on Fridays. Well, I don't know if you've checked your mail lately, but the property tax bills that we've all been waiting for have arrived or will soon arrive. Uh, And they will include this time around some new voter approved tax hikes, which means 
as is usually the case, your property tax bill is going to be higher than you may have anticipated and certainly higher than last year. Now, James, did you get yours yet? Have you received your uh, property tax bill? Yeah, it arrived about a week and a half ago. And uh, did you notice a big jump? I haven't had the heart to open it yet. Yeah, you kind of have to prepare yourself for that. I, it's it's one of those I keep passing the envelope and I feel that chill on my spine. Not today, no. Yeah. Well, we've uh, been dealing with medical bills, so I've been going through all of those. I'm sort of in the mode of being shocked and, and awed uh, by by opening bills. So I did open my property tax bill, and true to form, it was much higher than I expected it to be. Of course, with no modification to our property or its value that I could see, it still went up dramatically. And you may have been wondering why that's the case. Well, spending measures approved by voters in the past year um, are about to hit home, quite literally. Uh, the Oregon, the Oregonian, rather, reports that the property tax bills arriving in the mailboxes across the state, they include major new levies. Now, you may have forgotten about them. You know, we vote for them or against them at some point in the distant past, and we forget about them. Uh, but they have now shown up on the property tax bills, particularly for school construction that are uh, taking effect for the first time. Now, that combined with new development coming onto the uh, tax rolls, meaning uh, property tax revenues will jump in all three metro area counties, 11% in Multnomah County, 6.5% in Clackamas County, 5.9% in Washington. Now, are you in Washington, James, Washington County? Washington County, yes. Yeah, so you haven't opened it yet, but you can expect a 5.9% increase. Uh, I happen to be in Multnomah County and 11%. Now, I thought our property taxes were staggering to begin with, and they have gone up every year that we've been in our home. So to have that 11% jump, along with uh, the increase that we already anticipated, is pretty um, sobering. The one affecting the largest number of homeowners is the $790 million construction bond for Portland Public Schools. Now, that measure was approved in May, and it allows the district to uh, renovate or build four schools and make safety fixes in most of the rest. The net increase from existing bonds amounts to $1.36 per $1,000 of assessed value. So you can kind of do the math in your head. Portland Public Schools will collect $472 million here in Multnomah County a 23% increase from previous years. Uh, and that makes up that 11%, but it's for uh, Portland Public Schools, a 23% increase for them from the previous year. The largest rate increase comes in the Gresham Barlow School District. Residents there passed a $291.2 million bond in November of 2016 to pay for school upgrades. The net increase amount will be $1.63 uh, per $1,000 assessed value for your home. That's just the um, the reverse of what's in Multnomah County, where it's $1.36 per $1,000 assessed value, $1.63 uh, per $1,000 assessed value in the Gresham Barlow area. Voters in the Lake Oswego, Sherwood, Tiger, Tualatin school districts are also uh, they've also approved bond uh, debt. Uh, Portland's Fire and Police Disability Retirement Fund operates on a pay-as-you-go basis, and that means the fund's uh, costs every year are split among Portland property owners. It's going to collect $143 million this year. That's an increase of 11.9% uh, for that fund. And new construction boosted Metro County's tax base by billions of dollars as well. In Oregon, the taxable value of a property usually grows about 3% a year regardless of any increase or decline in the market value. It's just a given. Well, that's due to a pair of ballot measures in the 1990s. That was Measure 47 and Measure 50. For those of you who were around in the 90s, you might recall. But it effectively detached a property's market value from its taxable values. 
And as a result of that built-in 3% growth, plus the added value of new construction, the taxable value of property climbed. In Multnomah County, um, an increase of 4.8%. That's about $3.3 billion. In Washington County, an increase of 4.9%, about $2.9 billion in Washington County. And in Clackamas County, uh, an increase of 4.8%. That's about $2.2 billion in Clackamas uh, County. Well, Oregon's um, property tax system is pretty complex. It doesn't always make it easy to figure out. uh, But uh, those are at least some... Uh, some things to consider as you, like James, have the courage to <laughs> finally open that thing and see um, the increase of 11 percent in Multnomah County, a little less than the other counties that I've mentioned, uh, and where that money is going. Thought you'd uh, thought you'd want to know. Hey, a couple of things I want to mention before we sign off today. KPDQ and Salvation Army are fighting for good, and we need your help. They're looking for uh, groups to ring the bell at a Salvation Army red kettle this Christmas season. Uh, You'll help raise money to fund initiatives all year long. On average, just 60 minutes of red uh, kettle bell ringing yields enough donations to feed 13 people. So your hour can actually mean a significant impact on our community. You can go to kpdq.com for your KPDQ or rather your KPDQ mobile app to volunteer and find out more. If you've um, appreciated those who stand out by that red kettle, uh, kettle rather, ringing the bell uh, to serve our community, you could become one of them. And again, go to kpdq.com or your KPDQ mobile app to volunteer and find out more. Uh, And uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, you have an opportunity to celebrate Thanksgiving with KPDQ and Adventist Health. They invite you to the Celebration of Thanksgiving concert featuring Point of Grace. That's coming up on Saturday, November the 18th. And can you believe we're that close to to November? 7 o'clock p.m. at New Hope Community Church in Happy Valley. Admission is free with your ticket. Uh, They want to know that uh, they have enough room for the folks who are coming and a non-perishable food item or a new pair of socks for your uh, for our community. Now, space is limited, so pick up your free ticket at KPDQ Studios today. Uh, up to four tickets per family. Uh, you can find out more also at kpdq.com or on your KPDQ mobile app. Again, an opportunity to celebrate Thanksgiving, and I think Point of Grace will be featured, and that's going to be a great uh, evening of music and celebration and Thanksgiving. kpdq.com or your KPDQ mobile app. Again, tomorrow is Reformation Day. We'll spend some time talking about that and reflecting on it. We're also going to talk with Julie Royce, Redeeming the Feminine Soul, God's Surprising Vision for Womanhood, or rather, Womanhood. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blinn for producing all of today's program and engineering a portion of it. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.